Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Uh, we are up. All right, Dave. Welcome, man. It's good talking to you. I, 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 we kind of interacted a while back, but I hadn't kind of heard heard from you in, in, in a little while. So you are, I think if I'm not mistaken, you're in California as well, correct? Yeah, SoCal, Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach, yeah. So I'm just down the road in Laguna Hills. Um, for our audience folks who have not sort of interacted with you, which are probably most of them, <laughs> give, us a, give us a little rundown on your background. Uh, you know, where you're from, where you know, what you do, your, a little bit of your backstory, and then we can kind of go into questions and stuff. Okay. Well, uh, professionally, I'm a, uh, I'm a licensed private investigator, and I run my own firm here in California. I got a small team of guys. We do surveillance, interrogation, background type stuff like that. So I work, I work full time doing that. Uh, also certified health coach, um, certified personal trainer, uh, father. Uh, I got a four-year-old kid, which is kind of taking up most of my time <laughs> these days. Uh, athletically doing uh, some powerlifting, kind of got into that right around the time I started really getting into the the keto, paleo, whole foods movement, and uh, just been having a lot of fun with that. I compete maybe once or twice a year, just in amateur uh, competitions around around here. Um, kind of took the traditional trajectory of a lot of the, the carnivores uh, that, I, that I talked to from the sad diet, feeling like shit, you know, performing like shit, achy joints, gut issues, whatever, depression, anxiety, found the the paleo diet this is probably i don't know 15 years ago and then slowly slowly moved into low carb slowly moved into keto moved into the fasting thing and then right around the same time you were getting into the carnivore diet i was i just started following you on twitter i think our first conversation was about uh how to make egg white heavy whipping cream ice cream taste good on a low carb keto diet (laughs) And, uh, and I tried it and we went back and forth on Twitter a little bit. And then I saw you, uh, just go full bore carnivore. So I just said, Hey, you know, this guy's doing some cool, cool stuff. So I'll follow. So then I did the, 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 the carnivore thing for a while, for about, about a year straight, uh, strict and felt great. Um, and then my personality is kind of, I like to take things to the extreme so I went raw for about a month and I ended up in the hospital <laughs> with uh, salmonella um, for six days. And uh, I, was, I was crapping out blood, crapping out my, my intestines, basically. And that was, uh, that was the end of the raw experiment. But uh, yeah, so now I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm basically, you know, your average Joe, just trying to make the diet and lifestyle and parenting and work. And, you know, I'm starting to, I'm, I'm running my own small business but I don't want to be consumed with having to exercise and plan meals and all that stuff. So 
really my focus has been with myself and my clients on how to turn all of this, this cool information, this new diet into something that is sustainable for, you know, an everyday person, you know, just who, who might be working in a cubicle, you know, not, not an athlete or something like that. So that's basically my, uh, my background. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, the raw thing, because I get a lot of people that, that will tell me that, you know, hey, knucklehead, don't cook your meat. You're, you're, you're just not going to be healthy if you cook meat. And you need to eat it raw and you need to eat a lot of raw brains and raw kidneys and, you know, all this raw liver and stuff like that. And I point out that there, you know, there are people who get really sick doing that. And, you know, it's not that raw necessarily is awful for everybody because a lot of a lot of people consume raw meat throughout the world but there is a significant and serious potential health risk with that and you're not the first person at all that i've seen get an infection from raw meat so i mean that's something and i and i try you know i, I experiment with it a little bit myself but i just honestly didn't like it i just i was like I, this isn't palatable to me i don't there and there are some people that claim they can sit down there and chew through a raw ribeye and be happy as can can, can be and more power to them but i personally it's not for me um, you know, and when you talk about simplifying, you know, there, this is, a, you know, in my view, I can tell people just, you know, just eat a bunch of steak and, you know, maybe cook a couple of eggs in there and, and you're pretty much good to go for most people. Uh, but there is this sort of desire, like anything to optimize, which always means complicate, uh, which I think is unnecessary to do. So, so what, what is your, so when you say, I'm going to just make it for the average cubicle dude, how do you go about approaching that sort of issue. So, like I said, I'm a, I'm a PI, so I do a lot of surveillance. Um, that means sitting in a vehicle for, you know, 8, 10, 14, 16 hours a day in one static position, uh, you know, not able to get up and, and go to the local Taco Bell or whatever. <clears throat> so, when I first started doing that, that line of work, I was, you know, high-carb, sad diet. And, you know, I'd wake up 4 or 5 a.m., eat as much food as I could. I would have to have, you know, three, four meals plus snacks and then just loading myself with caffeine all day. You know, I don't have a boss, you know, behind my shoulder kind of telling me to stay awake and keep on task. So I was just falling asleep, you know, in, in my surveillance vehicle. And it was, and then I, so then I would just eat more sweets and eat more carbs and eat more caffeine, you know, more energy drinks. And then I would get super jacked up and, and then my anxiety would go through the roof. And then by the time I made it home, I, I wouldn't be able to go to sleep or relax just because I had so many stimulants in, inside of me. So when I found the keto thing, it was nice because I could get up, I could have, you know, whatever I was doing back then, a bulletproof coffee or something, and then maybe pack you know, one high fat meal and I could go all day fast all day. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's common in the, the low carb and carnivore communities that everybody just says that the mental focus is just there and it's there for a long sustained period of time. So for someone that has to keep their eyes on, you know, a, a facility or a car or a door for, for literally eight hours straight, this, this kind of diet, low carb, you know, high fat thing just worked out and, and it was just very easy for me. So the way that I do it is less is more for me. You know, the less types of foods you can, you can eat, the less, you know, frequency, you lower the frequency and everything just kind of becomes simple. I have a kid, like I said, I got a four-year-old kid. Uh, I'm running a business. I can't 
do the meal prep thing. I'm not going to weigh my food out. I'm not going to have protein shakes on me all the time. Um, it gets a little complicated if I'm trying to bulk up, which, which uh, I think a lot of carnivores experience, you know, it's, it's difficult to gain weight if they're trying to, you know, the hypertrophy is, is something that, that has been a challenge for me, but uh, less is more. And the carnivore diet really just simplifies everything down. So you can focus on your goals, you know, in, in your life outside of food, you know, it's like people get so overwhelmed or, or focused in on, on diet and exercise. It's like, okay, are you spending time with your family? Are you learning something new? Are you, you know, how, how's your household? Is your room clean? You know, people focus so hard on perfecting their meals and adding this supplement and that supplement and timing and, and, and the amounts and the grams, and the macronutrients. It's like you lose track of, of what the whole purpose is. And the purpose is to improve your life. I, in my opinion, food should improve your life, not dictate it. So that's kind of my opinion on that. Yeah. You know, it is interesting. Cause I think like, I think, I mean, context is everything when it comes to like intermittent fasting and that sort of thing, but it does seem like there are some like lifestyles that just lend themselves very nicely to that sort of a setup where you can just like, you know, account for how much you need within a lot tighter window. And then you find yourself in these positions where, where it's just kind of an inconvenience to have to think about eating. And, you know, I think the, the typical one to think of is like a truck driver. I always think would be, that's an ideal type of situation or anyone who's working outside of a typical office or from home where they don't have like kind of that built in like lunch break and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've done, I've done a lot of fasting. I've done, uh, I do intermittent fasting weekly and then I've gone up to five days. Um, which is, it's difficult, but it's, it's kind of a real eye opener to understanding like what the body like really truly needs to, uh, to feel good. Um, and it's almost an exercise more in, in, uh, emotions than it is in physiology, you know, learning that, you know, these, these hunger cravings and these triggers and these, these pangs are, are more almost correlated with anxiety, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I do these five day fasts and uh, something stressful in my life happens, whether it be in my relationship or with work or with my kid. And all of a sudden I have a craving for sugar. You know, it's like, I just want to soothe myself with food, you know? So I, you break past those, those anxiety, you know, barriers and you, you kind of, you kind of realize like, Oh, I, I really don't, the human body is designed to go long periods of time without constant, you know, glucose or whatever. So it's kind of, kind of cool experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, you know, it's interesting because one of the first uh, people I worked with, this was years ago with kind of like implementing a high fat, low carb diet was a guy who was, uh, you know, he, he worked for the FBI and he would do a lot of like stakeout type things. And he said, really what he needs is something that's going to like kind of put him in a position where his energy levels are, more static or more consistent. So he's not having this big, like, you know, if you're sitting in a car, you don't necessarily want to have like a load of energy either. Cause that's probably gonna get met with a, with a come down. And then exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he thought, I, I'm curious, like, for, and maybe there isn't a very vocal, like kind of community of uh, PIs that discuss with one another, but is there like a typical nutritional approach that folks with that type of line of work are gravitate to? Because I know this, this FBI agent that I was working with, he said, 
it was almost kind of a negative feedback loop in the sense that it was like you kind of described, you don't want to eat a ton because then you kind of get groggy or kind of in that food coma. And that's not good if you're sitting there like stagnant either. So they would eat like very small amounts to kind of get a small energy burst and like the caffeine and that sort of stuff. So it was always just trying to kind of like re reping that system. And that's what intrigued him the most about a keto diet was that he could maybe have that even keel energy flow for long periods of time and then just eat a bigger dinner when he got back or eat a bigger, bigger breakfast before he left or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's exactly kind of how I do things. Um, I think in general, the, the people that I work with, the surveillance investigators that I work with are generally overweight and, you know, low back pain or hip pain, you know, um, because they're doing the, you know, wake up, bowl of oatmeal and a banana, take a bag of nuts with them, trail mix, uh, granola bars all day long, and then just energy drink after energy drink, just to try and, and do anything they can just to stay awake. But I do the, uh, I prefer the fasted, go to work fasted with a nice big, you know, cup of coffee or tea maybe add some, you know, some fat to that. <clears throat> and I'll have, I'll buy just big, uh, big things of beef jerky. And if I want to snack on a piece of beef jerky, I'll do that. But uh, generally the, the big dinner after I get home from work, maybe after I train seems to work best because that's when it's time to kind of relax. You know, I'm done with the work day, that big heavy meal kind of settles and I can just chill and hang out with the family. So, so I, I really want to, I think, I think for not only for surveillance investigators, but just for anybody with a, a cubicle job or a desk job that's sitting all day that needs to focus in front of a computer or in front of clients, I think that they would find that this way of eating will really lend itself to their productivity and, and their mood. You know, when you feel good, people, people f can really read that. People can feel and sense that you feel good physically. And if you're trying to, I've done sales, you know, if you feel good and you're going into a sales meeting, you have a way better chance of connecting with that person. You know, you, if you're tired and you feel like you're hungry and you got a, a hypoglycemic event and you're trying to sell somebody on something, it's most likely not going to, not going to work out, you know? So I think, I think this way of eating really lends itself to that style of work. Yeah. You know, the other interesting thing that I thought of when you were talking about just the profession in general was the lower back issues that I think would just be inevitable from sitting in a car seat or something for that, for that length of time. Did you notice that there was any, any variance with your diet in terms of that? Or did you even have that issue personally or? Yeah, I have. I, so I get real uh, tight hip flexors, you know, from mm. just sitting in that, in that flexed position all day and and I'm also training really hard. You know, I love to train. I love deadlifting. I love squatting. I love pressing. So a lot of times it's just like a, a horrible combination when I'm, I'm working out really hard. I have severe doms and then I sit in a car the following day for, you know, eight hours. Uh, and one thing that I notice is when I have a higher sugar intake, cause I do experiment with, with, uh, like targeted sugar, mm -hmm. um, for different reasons with powerlifting. But one thing I notice is a couple, a, a week or so, a couple of weeks into experimenting with sugar, I notice the low back and the hips 
And then sometimes the knees start to have that achy, you know, achy feeling where I'm just like, uh, towards the end of my day and my, you know, in my shift, I'm just like, I feel like I'm a, just a wound up ball, you know, and I got it. I go to the sauna and I try to stretch out, but the, the lower carb that I go specifically any grains, wheat kind of really messes with my joints and my back. Um, I, I think I have a gluten, you know, insensitivity or something like that, but all my feet will swell up a little bit, but the, so the lower amount of carb that I in, ingest, the better it seems to, to, uh, to deal with the back pain and the hip pain. Mm-hmm. And I try to, I try to tell that to a lot of the, my colleagues, but it's, you know, it's so hard getting past that, that sugar hump, you know? Yeah. You know, that's interesting because like, I feel the same way with my experience when I find myself sitting or driving for a long period of time, where when I'm in a position of the year where my training is really low or I'm in a recovery mode and I'm keeping the carbs down super low or next to nothing that like I can sit longer without getting like a weird little like ache or pain somewhere in like your, your leg or your IT band or lower back. The only thing, the hardest part to tease out though too is because when I do bring any like any, any carbohydrate back in my training, that's also kind of in combination with my bigger training sessions. Right. So you know, it's, it's really hard to kind of tease out like, well, maybe that's just because I ran 25 miles that day versus, yeah. <laughs> versus the carbohydrate or not. But it is interesting to kind of pay attention to that stuff and see where the variances are. Yeah, I agree. Gabe, when you, because I remember what seeing, you know, you were hitting some pretty decent numbers in your powerlift and you're seeing making progress and you're doing that on a meat-based diet. What, is, what has your experience been with, you know, the strength training aspect of it? So uh, that's been a really fun area to try and, tease out what is <clears throat> what is driving the gains and then separating what type of gains are we talking about you know are we talking about actual hypertrophy are we talking about strength or are we talking about you know muscular endurance um, and I I feel that the so over over the past four years I've I, I just pulled 605 yes two days ago um, at 205 pounds and so three times, almost three times body weight. So I feel like I'm, I'm progressing pretty well. And I've been powerlifting for about four years now. And I was looking back just to see, you know, what my, what I was doing four years ago. And I was lifting, you know, I started off deadlifting like 365 pounds, you know, and I was like stoked on a PR, a PR, 365 pounds. And I was around 180 pounds back then. So the meat based diet has, is obviously not hindering strength gains. Um, one thing I I've noticed is I can train at submaximal uh, intensities for much longer on zero carb. So it just it just feels like I can just get in the gym and just lift and lift and lift and lift and lift and go and go and go for hours when I'm on the zero carb uh, uh, routine. Um, the, the only downside is I lose that maximal, I feel like I lose that maximal effort. I can't hit the, the PRs as easily on zero carb. So what I do is I kind of blend the two. So I'll, I'll start off a, a power lifting cycle uh, with zero carb 
and I'll just get volumes really high, really high, really high, and try to, to work on hypertrophy and try to work on muscular endurance. And then as I progress through the, the training program, <clears throat> I'll lower the volumes down. And then towards the end, when I'm peaking, I'll add in like dextrose or maybe some rice, um, maybe some potato. And that seems to help with the, the maximal intensities. And also, uh, I feel like there's a mechanical advantage with the, the glycogen. I've heard it called glycoswell before, you know, you eat a bunch of sugar and you eat a bunch of potatoes or whatever, and your legs kind of blow up, your glutes blow up, your abdomen blows up. So I've noticed that I don't, I don't necessarily know if I'm stronger as if, or if it's in the bottom of the squat, when all these muscle systems are compressed, that I'm just getting more of a rebound out of the actual muscle volume. So I've been experimenting with that. And uh, the one thing that has been constant is that it's just probably 90%, 85, 90% red meat is, is what makes up my diet. And then I just fill in the gaps, you know, where I, where I feel like glucose can be useful. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting. And we know that when we, you know, start consuming carbohydrates in general, we see more retention of fluid. And, you know, I think that swelling is pretty, you know, pretty well known. I mean, that's, you know, that's where people get a pump. And, you know, some people can circumvent that on a zero carb diet, carnivore diet by adding salt and water. I don't know if you play with that, you probably have. Um, I know for me that that puts more, you know, I mean, it's documented that you can salt load, sodium load, and you can you know, with a little more intravascular water, which might improve efficiency. But yeah, are you are you competing in a are you competing in a raw or suit, suited contest, or what what kind of contest are you doing right now? Uh, drug tested raw yeah. is, is okay. where I compete. So I'll, I'll use knee sleeves and a belt. Yeah, so so that's a pretty decent solid pull six oh five. That's good, man. That's that's you know obviously almost almost not quite, but almost doubled what you were doing when you started. So yeah. That's that's a hell of a lot, a lot of way to go. Um, what have you done? What, what have you been doing with electrolytes? Have you played with electrolytes at all? Yeah, generally I wake up and I just drink a big glass of salt water. Um, and that seems to just kind of kickstart the day and, and you know, get the organs nice and lubed up. Um, I, I notice I have a reverse osmosis system in my house. So it basically pulls all the minerals out of everything. So, um, Every day is, is pretty much, you know, a big jug of water and I'll dump some salt in there and uh, occasionally I'll, I'll, you know, cycle on some potassium and magnesium. Usually I'll take, take some magnesium tablets before bed at night and that seems to help with sleep. Um, zinc, I'll take, you know, 20, 25 milligrams of zinc at night as well. And these are just minerals and, and I feel like uh, I, I try to stay away from the whole, you know, the whole supplement world as much as I can. Um, but minerals, I feel like you can, as long as it's from a good source, uh, you know, that it really helps with that electrolyte balance. Um, so I will, I will add that in and just lots of, so I salt to taste on my food. Usually it seems like a lot to, to other people, but it tastes perfectly fine to me. So, I mean, and because there's people always ask about that, obviously you're performing well, you're getting stronger. I mean, your body composition, you know, I assume is in pretty good, pretty good position. Um, 
I, I assume that clinically you feel good, you know, everything's going well on that. I mean, are you uh, one of these guys that's, you know, checking labs all the time or have you checked some labs to see? Cause I know a lot of people like to hear the blood work and I've, I've said my piece about that enough to say that I'm more concerned with, with more chronic indicators of health and than what happens to be floating around in the blood at that particular second. But is that something you've done? It is. Uh, I, I have a blog over at ancientgains.com where I write about some of the, the testing that I do. And when I was, when I was into the keto thing, I was, <clears throat> I got one of those breath ketone analyzers. I was testing ketones, blood ketones. I was testing glucose, you know, multiple times a day. Um, so I got really into kind of like the biohacking world and all that stuff. Uh, I learned that, uh, my testosterone was epically low. Um, when I was in, you know, my, my late twenties, uh, my, my lowest reading was 107 was my free testosterone and, uh, or my total testosterone was 107, which was just like, it was, it was almost depressing. You know, like what the heck is going on here? Um, so I wrote about, uh, you know, moving from the sad diet when my testosterone was really low and feeling, you know, depressed and, and lots of anxiety, you know, just, just like a kind of an overwhelming, like this sense of worry, you know, just all the time, not even really knowing why. And, uh, so I really, I really dove into, okay, here's a metric I can track, you know, testosterone, um, my blood, I finally got my blood glucose under control. Uh, with the keto diet. And then as I started moving away from, you know, the sad diet into the keto into carnivore, I started testing testosterone again, and I got it up to uh, close to 600 uh, free, free testosterone. And I'm not even sure how it's just so nuanced, you know, the idea of what is good testosterone, what is bad testosterone. And I think you bring up a good point, instead of looking at uh, all these numbers on a piece of paper, like just how do you feel? You know, are you happy? Are you getting good sleep? You know, or do you have ED or not? Um, do you have energy levels? So to answer your question, basically I started off uh, with a lot of testing and, and, and a lot of blood work and, and just came to the realization that these numbers don't re really mean anything if I'm not feeling better, you know, and then I just kind of abandoned it. You know, I've, I've got all these devices and wearables in my office here and I just don't even use them because it's, I've got to the point where I know I'm feeling good when I eat this. and I know I feel like crap when I eat that. So I just kind of stick with that and, and uh, try to try to like, again, try to simplify things, you know, less data is almost more data, you know, more convenient sometimes. Yeah, we were talking about some of that with, uh, I think it was Keith Norris from PaleoFX about kind of some of the wearables and where you can, you can get some cool information and get a glimpse into kind of how that all works. But unless you're kind of training yourself to eventually become intuitive with it, it can kind of, they add up and then they can become a stressor in your life that, that you're trying to avoid in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Gabe, what you say you've got a you've got a, a kid, and I assume you have a wife that came came with that kid. But uh, how is your family doing with with your diet? Do they have any reservations? Your wife think you're going to drop dead of a heart attack anytime soon, or how does how does that work around the around the Rivera household? Oh, 
uh, well, I started, I started the whole, the, the whole keto thing around 2012, 2013, before it was kind of mainstream. So of course I got, you know, the aunts and uncles, the mom and dad and everybody, you know, you're going to have a heart attack, you know, like they, they, they really, they genuinely thought I was going to die of a heart attack, you know? And, uh, and as, as it's becoming more mainstream, you know, it's, I'm, I'm glad to see that happening because people are, are turning kind of changing directions with it. But, uh, I just got engaged, so n not quite a wife yet, but, but almost. And, uh, and she thinks I'm weird sometimes, you know, for doing the experiments that I do around the house and, and, you know, eating so much meat, but, but she's a meat eater too. So she's, she's pretty much meat based, but she, you know, she has her, her sweets and, and, and her breads and stuff too. And I'm not, I'm not going to jump on her for that, but, uh, the, the kid, four year old kid loves meat and, uh, there's nothing, I mean, sitting down with my son and eating a, a nice ribeye is, it just brings me so much joy sometimes, you know, and, and, and seeing, seeing his development physically and, uh, and mentally, you know, how he's learning so quickly and his speech and everything is just developing so well. Um, he's really strong for, for such a little guy. He's super strong. And I noticed that his mood is, is way better when we remove the cookies and, you know, the crackers. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. It's really hard to to maintain a, a clean eating household with a four year old that's going to school and seeing his kids, you know, his friends with with treats, and then he goes over to, you know, grandma and grandpa's house or or whoever's watching him at the time, and and uh, you know he's getting candy, so that's difficult, and that's kind of just been something that that I've accepted. You know, he's gonna have some some, you know, processed carbohydrates from time to time. But, uh, I, I think, I think, uh, I'm happy with being able to, to give him just, I was giving beef, you know, ground beef, those eat ground beef and eggs, maybe throw some avocado in there. And, uh, that seems to work really well with behavior and, and with physical and is, is I think brain development too. the, the animal fats, I think are, crucial for for young kids you know the brain is literally made out of fat so all right folks this episode of human performance outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a meat delivery company that brings you high quality beef chicken pork salmon and scallops what does this mean all products are natural and humanely raised or sustainably wild caught as is the case with their salmon and scallops if you are concerned with how the animals you eat were raised rest assured ButcherBox partners with farmers who are inspired by dr temple grandin a member of the humane farm animal care program's scientific committee their beef is 100 percent grass-fed and grass-finished the chicken is organic and the pork is heritage breed with no added sugar. So head over to butcherbox.com and place an order today. And don't forget to enter promo code HPO for a discount. Thank you for supporting one of our longstanding sponsors. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good point. Uh, we know with, with children, particularly the first two years of life, uh, you know, when we look at breast milk, it's extremely high in saturated fat, but we look at the first two years of life and that's when, when most of our 
you know, a high percentage of our brain development occurs and then it continues up until about age six at a high rate. And then it kind of slowly continues till we're about 25. I think when we're about 25, our brain stops finally growing. Uh, so that's a really important point. And you know, like with my ki- my kids, I mean, I have a one, the one that I have with me full-time right now is seven. And he's recently, I'll, I'll grind, you know, I'll cook up some ground beef. I'll throw a little bit of seasoning, like a little taco seasoning in there, throw some cheese and an egg on there. And man, he's in heaven. I mean, that's, that's a big dish. And he's been doing that a lot lately. And that's, you know, he, 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 you know, he gets either meat or eggs pretty much every single meal. You know? Yeah. And then if he wants something else, you know, beyond that, after he gets that, you know, it's kind of like you hit them, you, you make sure you cover the bases at the beginning. And then if they're still hungry, uh, you know, and this is one thing I've found, I've, I've talked about this before, when I get my kids, like all my kids together, um, I'll cook them a huge, huge, like, like if I'm watching them on the weekend, I cook them a huge, huge breakfast of, you know, steak, eggs, bacon, you know, you know, load up on animal food, fat and protein. And then I don't really hear from them for six, eight hours, you know, whereas most parents are, you know, every 15 minutes are busting Mm -hmm. out a granola bar or fruit strip or, you know, a a juice box, or, you know, it's like constantly hungry, but it's, I mean, it's a parenting hack. It makes parenting a lot, a lot more, you know, simple when you load those kids up with proper nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. One, one trick I'll do is, you know, he'll, he'll say, Hey dad, can I have, you know, can I have this cookie or can I have this or that, or, you know, whatever processed card kids are going to love sugar. I mean, there's no doubt about that. So what I'll, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, you can, you can have, you can have some of that cookie, but you got to eat this first, you know, and I'll, and I'll cook them a little, a little bowl of ground beef and we'll do a little, like you said, some seasoning on there. And then half the time, by the time he's done, you know, eating the beef, he's not hungry anymore and he's moving on to the next, you know, little whatever adventure that he's doing around the house. So that's kind of like a, little hack that I've learned, you know, and, and, and then if he wants the cookie afterwards, it's like, okay, so he's got, he's got the nutrition in there and, and first with the meat or, you know, the avocado or the egg or something like that. And then, okay, go ahead, you know, and, and I'll let him, I'll let him have that. Cause I know he's, he's being fed, you know, the, the proper nutrients beforehand. You know, that's an interesting point just in general with like the, the frequency of feeding that you see a lot of kids and like, you know, I don't have kids myself, but I, I see them from time to time and watch some of this stuff. And I wondered always, because it seemed like with a lot of children, they won't eat a lot in any one sitting. And I always thought maybe that's why they're eating so frequently because, you know, they fill up, but they're pretty high energy and they're growing. So like they're going to need fuel again soon. So like, I guess maybe the, the question for the two parents in the room is like, did it take a little while for your kids to get used to eating big enough meals? I guess, Sean, maybe specifically, since you're, you said you're, your son is eating like a relatively big breakfast, did it take him a while to like want to eat a big breakfast? Or did that just, is that just, maybe I'm just seeing things because it's just kind of what the reality has become and it's been more programmed into them versus it being their, their intuition? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, because he's been doing it since he's, basically old enough to eat so he's kind of gotten used to it so I don't, I don't know that he ever had to get programmed into it he's always eating that way so that's worked you know pretty well for me hey Gabe let me let me just switch gears a little bit because you, you know I, we don't get a lot of PIs private investigators on our show <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that stuff so what I mean w- you know we see these TV shows where we, we've got this you know vision of what a private investigator is typically doing what is a typical 
day, you know, what, I mean, how, what kind of stuff are people asking you to do? How long does it take? What it, like if some, you know, just throw me a typical scenario. What's, what's going on with private investigation? Okay. So there's a couple different sides to, uh, to what I do. There's the surveillance, which is literally going out, finding somebody, you know, if I have to locate them, then I'll locate them. And then depending on what the client wants, if this is a worker's compensation case, then, you know, we're looking for uh, this person, this person uh, exceeding their injury restrictions that they've, that they've stated they had, you know, I can't work because my back is injured. So you need to pay me because I got injured on the job. So if I'm, if I'm doing surveillance, it would be uh, HD video following them everywhere they go. You know, if they, if they fly to Vegas, I'm flying to Vegas with them. You know, if they go to Disneyland, I'm going to Disneyland, whatever it is that they do, I'm on them, uh, you know, usually for eight to 10 hour day uh, everywhere they go. And uh, the video evidence that I, that I obtained then gets forwarded to, you know, their attorney or, or the judge, basically. So that's one side of it. Um, another side is uh, the interrogations. So if somebody says, uh, you know, I, I was hurt at work, um, this, is, this is what happened, these people witnessed it. So I'll go out and I'll interview witnesses that may or may have not seen, or maybe they worked with this person, um, and I'll interview them and write up a report and gain as much information. I'll, you know, we can subpoena uh, video cameras that, that might be at the location or, or um, basically talk to everybody that, that they were involved in. Or if there was a, you know, a crime, go to the scene and interview witnesses in the area of the crime. Um, so a lot of sitting down with a tape recorder and just talking to people and, and getting information. That's another side. And then uh, I guess the, the third big side is the background check and the, just the database searching information. Um, a lot of people want to, uh, I mean, sometimes a, a father will want to know something about his daughter's boyfriend, you know, or it could be an employer wanting to know about, you know, a potential uh, uh, hiree. So we do database searches, social media searches, um, and just dig up, you know, whether it be dirt or, or nothing at all, uh, arrest records, that sort of thing. So it's, it's, I think why I've been so, so attracted to this whole, uh, the, the diet thing and learning this, this diet thing is I'm, I'm pretty good at gaining information. I'm really good at observation and, and, and tracking things and uh, paying attention to detail. I'm just, everything about my job is paying attention to, tiny nuances and tiny uh, variances and, and little details here and there. So I think that kind of that skill lended itself to learning uh, that this way of eating, you know, is, is something that works for me. So. How do you, uh, you know, like you said, you're filming, you I guess you're filming people. I mean, what's, is there like some super spy cameras and how do you not get caught? Do you ever get caught? Does anybody get suspicious? How do you, how do you kind of maintain following somebody from eight hours a day without them kind of like saying, man, this dude's been kind of pounding me all day long. Well, how's, how's that work? Well, there's definitely a skill set, you know, that, that has to be learned. Um, you know, and it's all, you got to read how the person is, is reacting. You know, if that person comes outside and they've got their head in a swivel and they're looking around, I'll probably, you know, give them a good cushion. You know, if I'm following them, whether it be on foot or in a vehicle, I've got a, I've got a tiny little, little race car hatchback, you know, a, a, a 
little turbo car. It's blacked out windows and it's really small. So I can, I can let somebody get kind of, kind of far away and, and be able to, to catch up in time. And, and it's just really, it's just, uh, you gotta feel it out. You know, you gotta, you gotta know if the person is aware and, and know if they're not aware, if they're not aware then you can get right up on them. Most people these days, are completely oblivious to what's going on around them. You know, they have no spatial awareness. So uh, sometimes my day is really easy, but then a lot of times some of these, these, these people are coached, you know, by whether it be an attorney or, you know, if they're going through a divorce and they know that there's a lot of money at stake. And so they, they come out and they're just all over the place. Uh, at, at that point, maybe we'll use two guys, you know, I'll get a team of guys out there. One guy sits, you know, on the house and we've got two way radios. Okay. He's coming. You know, and then we got another guy down the street at the park, you know, and then, and then he'll tell them out of there. But, uh, a lot of different disguises, you know, I, I carry, I carry a bag of different clothes. Just, just, uh, this week I followed somebody into a gym and, you know, I had to buy a, buy a day pass going there. I've got, I've always got my gym bag with me anyways, but I'll take my gym bag in there, put my gym clothes on and I've got, you know, covert cameras. One of them is a, you know, a coffee cup. It's got a lens. You can't see it. And I'll just point it in the direction, set it on the ground. And I'll do my workout, do my, you know, whatever I'm doing and just blend in, you know, just, you gotta be, uh, you gotta be gray man, as we call it in the industry, somebody that is just not noticeable. Have you know, well, how long have you been a PI? I've been doing this for almost 15 years. Yeah. Cause I was, I was curious about that because when you were talking about just like the level of like attention to detail you need there's a huge transition between being a PI 15 years ago and being a PI today. And I would imagine like if you had been a PI 30 years ago, it'd be an even bigger transition because nowadays like every private and public place has like a surveillance camera on it. It seems like, and you know, people are carrying around phones and things like that. So I could see that as maybe potentially complicating things, but also maybe making it easier as well. What was it like to kind of transition into a, an era or an age where like everyone's social media stuff is kind of out there available to the world for a lot of, in a lot of cases. And then, you know, also, um, I guess you probably don't have access to like, like a, a, a private places surveillance camera or anything like that, but in certain circumstances that could probably be a useful tool. Yeah. So the, the social media aspect, a lot of times that's all we need, you know, to, to get an investigation started, you know, okay, we need to know what this person's doing. So I'll run, you know, I, I've got access to public records and, and databases that, uh, that basically if, if somebody has an online presence, I'll find it and we can design an entire investigation built off of what we find online. So, uh, and a lot of people, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've hurt my leg, I've hurt my back at work and then they're posting, you know, going water skiing or whatever, you know, <laughs> or they'll even, they'll even say when they're going, you know, and then we can go and, and set up surveillance at that location. And, uh, and it's basically case closed at that, at that point. But um, one thing where technology and, and constant social media has helped is uh, people always have their phones in their hand. You know, they're, I mean, they're always looking down and they're always, you know, like I said, spatially unaware. So I can walk into, I can walk right up to somebody, you know, in a public area and they'll be just on their phone like that. And I can just hold my phone to my, to my head and just film them, you know, just, just 
right there out in public and everything out in public is, is, is uh, totally legal. Um, so in that case, in that sense, it's actually kind of helped a little bit, the, all the technology. How often, uh, Gabe, how often do you find out that you're investigating for somebody for whatever, they're fraudulently claiming something that, do you find that to be true or do you find that most people are telling the truth or what's, what's been your experience overall? Well, uh, I'm not only out there to bust people, I'm out there to validate uh, someone's injury as well. So, you know, if, if, say, you know, your mom got hurt at work and she legitimately can't work anymore, I'll go out there and my evidence will help her through her, her workers' compensation process or her whatever, whatever process she's going through. So a lot of times, um, you know, I'm not just busting people. I'm, I'm helping people get the, the benefits that, that they do deserve. But in California, it's, it's pretty bad right now. It, a lot of a lot of people are filing claims. I mean, they get they get the job, they work a week, and they file a claim, and they stop working, and they start collecting workers' compensation. And you know, it's 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 kind of a shame because it's taxpayers' money. So, I would say most of the most of the time when an investigation hits my desk, it's already gone. It's already been vetted to the point where they're fairly certain this person is fraudulent and they just need me to go out there and, and prove it. So most of the cases I see, unfortunately are, are fraudulent. Do you ever uh, run into like, you know, is there, is there any degree of danger in what you do? I mean, do you have somebody that like, you know, is that, is that ever an issue for, or is it pretty, pretty tame for the most part? Uh, well, being in Southern California, I work a lot in, in the ghettos in LA, Compton, Watts, you know, I mean, as bad as it gets in LA and Santa Ana, surprisingly, I, I, I would say is probably the worst area. I, I mean, I hear gunshots all the time, you know, and these neighborhoods have drug dealers in them and these drug dealers have lookouts. So they see a new car, you know, a car with tinted windows pull up and you know, it's got, I, I just use these big windshield blockers so they can't see straight through my front windshield. But yeah, there's definitely an element of, of danger. And a lot of PIs that I work with carry, carry uh, uh, sidearms, but I've, I've never, I've never really, I feel like if you have a sidearm, you're, you're more likely to use it. So I've kind of shied away from that. Um, but yeah, in the, in the gang related areas, it, it can get kind of sketchy sometimes. <laughs> do you have any, uh, is it, I mean, it sounds like mostly work was compted. I mean, do you get into this crazy, like, you know, I guess divorce, you know, he said, she said, this guy's having an affair, this girl's having an affair. Does that, does, is that part of your, cause that, you know, that, that seems like the PI movies. And uh, do you have any interesting sort of, stories that you might want to relate regarding to what you've done over the years? Yeah. So I try and stay away from the, those are, those are what you call domestic claims or domestic cases, husband, wife, you know, divorce, children, custody, that sort of thing. I try and stay away just because it's really hard to report, you know, what you find to the, the spouse, you know, which is your client. And a lot of times these people don't, you know, don't really have the funds to, to, uh, to basically pay for this stuff. But, yeah, uh, 
it can get pretty dirty. It can get ugly. You know, you, you, you show somebody that their, their spouse is, is hanging out with, you know, someone else at a, at a hotel and things are going to get pretty dirty. But, uh, one time I followed, like I said, <clears throat> I'll follow somebody anywhere they go. So one time we followed the two man team. We started in LA and it ended up being a bachelor bachelorette party. Um, and we followed this, this group of young girls from Encino to LAX, hopped on a plane, flew to Vegas, got a hotel, uh, chatted them up in the bar to figure out where they were going. And then uh, basically got, got them doing, you know, what they're not supposed to be doing in Vegas. So in that case, <laughs> what happened in Vegas did not stay in Vegas, <laughs> as you could say. <laughs> Did you, I mean, is there, I guess with the private investigation, how, how does that work with like the, 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 the police and stuff like that? Do you have any sort of special powers, protections, uh, or do, is, there, is there lines that you can't cross as a private investigator? How does that work with regard to like the actual police force? Well, I, I try and work hand in hand with local law enforcement if I can. If it's a really bad area, you know, I'll, I'll show up, I'll arrive on site and immediately you know, if I, if I see that it's going to be an issue or it's going to be a difficult day with, with gang related activity, then I'll just call in a code five, which is, Hey, look, I'm out here. Um, if somebody calls or if, you know, if, if anything happens, just know that this is where I'm at. Sometimes I'll have in nicer areas like, you know, Laguna, Miguel or Dana point or something like that. Nicer areas, old ladies will call the cops on me, you know, I, I, there's this car out here on, you know, whatever. And cops will roll up and I'll just talk to them, show them my license. And, and usually that's, that's about it. But um, it's, it's kind of a try to work, work as a team with local law enforcement as much as I can. Um, but generally we stay out of, you know, stay out of each other's way. And that's, that's uh, basic stuff. Is there anything like trespassing? I mean, can you just kind of, I mean, if you're, I mean, if you're somebody's house and can you get up, get in their property and look in their windows or I mean, what is the, what's the law and that sort of stuff? So those, those laws, especially in California are pretty, pretty tough. Um, there's a level of privacy. There's an expectation of privacy that people uh, that, that Californians enjoy. You know, if, if you're in your house and your front windows open, you expect that you are in a private area. So no, you can't film through anybody's window. You can't film it over anybody's fence. Um, but if it is outside of a home, um, in a public setting, it's, it's fair game. Uh, as, as lawsuits happen and thing and people get, are getting sued, you know, it gets a little dicey when you're going into private properties, as far as like a, like a gym, for instance, if there's posted, you know, you know, no, no videotaping, then it's definitely a no go. Um, some big, large apartment complexes, you know, if they say no trespassing and then you go in there and get video of that person mowing their lawn, you know, then that is not admissible in court and you can even be, you know, you, you can be countersued, you know? So it's real tricky. You got to just be aware of, of what, you know, the posted signs are and you got to know uh, as a licensed investigator, I have to know all of that information. I have to know all of those laws. Um, if I were working under somebody else as an employee, then whatever I do falls on their license, falls on them. But as a small business owner now, it's uh, it's tough, you know, just walking that fine line, you know. 
That's actually an interesting question. I think like what, what is it like to get a license? Like what is that process like is I'm guessing you go to the classes or something like that. And then do you have to get that renewed on a time scale just because some of these things maybe change some of these laws and like the signage and the requirements around them? Yeah. So uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know what the requirements are now. I've had my license for a while, but, uh, at the time when I got it, you had to have, I think it was four, four years or, or 6,000 hours, or it was a certain amount of time working with a, a private investigations company, whether that be as an investigator or in case management or something like that. Um, so you had to have a certain amount of time under your belt. Uh, and then you have to go through live scan background check. They have to make sure that you are, a, you know, a decent person before they give you these, these, uh, these access to, to certain databases and stuff. And then there's just a test, you know, it's a, a test uh, proctored by California that you got to go in and, and pass. And, uh, and then you're issued your license and yeah, you got to, so private investigators are allowed to carry tear gas. We're allowed to carry tasers. We, we are licensed as bounty hunters. Um, it's, it's very easy for us to get to carry concealed weapons legally. So there is a, there is some responsibility that comes with a license. Um, so, uh, they, the state takes that very seriously. And, and like you said, yeah, you do have, I do have to have it renewed. I think it's every two years, two or three years. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I would think it would be, you just probably get really good at knowing, okay, here's a spot where there's, if I, if I have to be like with the gym, like you just know where the signs would be and things like that. Whereas, you know, someone like me, who's got zero experience with private investigating just doesn't even pay attention to that stuff. But for you, it's probably something that just sticks out like a sore thumb almost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of just second, second nature at this point. I've been doing it for so long. Have you ever had anybody like, clued on to you and try to run away do you and you have to chase him down or you know chase him in the car or does that ever happen or is that pretty much if, if somebody starts doing that and noticing like like with the police you know the high speed pursuit they kind of discourage that stuff because there's a lot of potential for damage do you ever see somebody like hey man this guy's following me and they try you know they try to escape yeah so in the industry we call that getting hot or getting made <clears throat> so that that's probably the worst case scenario is is if 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 someone knows that they're being investigated, you know, so it, it all depends on the circumstances of the case. If you're following somebody and you know that they're going to their under the table job when they've already filed a worker's compensation with a worker's compensation claim with my client. So they're not working over here, but then they're working under the table over here. And I know that they're doing that. Uh, I'll bulldog them all the way to their, you know, place of, of employment. Cause I know that they have to be there. I know when they get there, I'm going to get film of them. So unless they're going to just, you know, not go to work that day. So it just depends on the circumstance. If on the other side of the, the spectrum, if it's uh, it's a very sensitive case and, and maybe if this person feels that they are being followed, then, then they'll just stay inside for the rest of the week or the month or, or whatever, then if, if we see signs that they're, you know, they're looking around, they're making some U-turns or something, then we'll just break off right away. You know, it's, it's, you don't want to confirm their suspicion that they're being followed. You know, it could be just somebody that made several turns that they did, you know, so you never want to confirm uh, 
that somebody is, you know, being followed. But it, like I said, just all depends on the, on the particular case. <clears throat> are there, do you, uh, do you know, like if someone's got a significant criminal record or are there any cases you just say, Hey, I'm not going to do that. You know, or there's this guy's too wacky or something like that. Does that ever come up? Well, yeah, a lot of times we run, <clears throat> we'll run background checks on people before going out just to, you know, do they really live at this, at this spot and you know, arrest records and that sort of thing. I've personally never turned down, you know, any cases, but you know, a lot of these people are criminals, you know, they, I mean, they're, they're, what they're doing is stealing money from, from an employer. So if they're going to do that, you know, what are the, what else are they doing, you know, that we don't know about. <clears throat> so if it's, if it's in a bad, like say it's in Compton or something and it's, it's definitely gang related. I mean, there's people out, you know, you hear gunshots, then it's just, you just, you just distance yourself a little bit further or, or you add, you know, a second investigator onto, uh, onto the case. <clears throat> Does, you know, is there i I'm trying to think what I'm trying to ask here. Do we ever, uh, I mean, who are, it sounds like most of it's workers comp. I mean, that's, I mean, they, they obviously have a vested interest in saving money on that stuff. Do you, oh yeah, this is what I was going to ask you. You know, are there ever any? I mean, you you see these guys are bounty hunters. I mean, does that does that ever overlap to what you're doing? Do you ever have to help people like try to bring them in for apprehension or stuff like that? Yeah, a lot of times uh, we do what what's called just locates. <clears throat> you know, because uh, like I said, uh, licensed private investigators uh, are able to do bounty hunting as well. The reason I choose to do workers' compensation is just simply because there's more money in that industry. There's more work. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of times people, all they want is addresses. All they want is, okay, where is this guy going? Where, where can we find him? Where can we pick him up? Um, we've even worked with, uh, what's that, uh, that uh, federation that deports people? Um, ICE. I've worked with ICE, you know, down in San Diego a lot. People, people coming over from Mexico uh, getting jobs under fake social security numbers, um, filing claims, faking that they're injured, collecting money from workers' compensation, getting another job under a different social security number, filing another claim. So these people are, it's, they're just career, their, their career is to file workers' compensation claims and, and basically just collect money while they, while they sit on their butt. Um, and then a lot of these people down in San Diego are, are illegal immigrants. So ICE will, you know, contact us. Hey, can you find, find where this guy is? And then when you find him, you get video of him, confirm his ID, send us, you know, what you send us a report, send us what you have. Where's he going? Where can we find him? You know, where can we pick this guy up at? So yeah, we work hand in hand. A lot of the, a lot of the law enforcement and, and PIs work hand in hand. What is, you know, cause we hear now that, you know, like our refrigerators are spying on us and we've got all this technology that records everything we do. And, you know, Google, if you say something, then an ad pops up for, for that. So it's like, is, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess if you're criminal minded, it's gotta be increasingly more difficult to, to not leave fingerprints, whether they're, you know, actual fingerprints or digital fingerprints. How do you use technology to help you do it? You know, what kind of crazy stuff is out there that, that, 
that people may not know how they're being surveilled or, or, or you know, what, what kind of fingerprints we're leaving behind. Do you, do you get into that technology to help you do your job and how, how does that work? Yeah, that's a, that's kind of a, a tricky area. <clears throat> there's, there's some things that we have access to. There's some things that private investigators have access to that the general public does not have access to database searches, public records, court records, arrests, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but as far as, you know, your, your refrigerator or your washing machine tracking, you know, I'm, I'm not listening in on to, uh, what, <laughs> what you're saying inside your kitchen. Uh, but, uh, I, I'll just say, I'll say this. I know some PIs that do cross that line, um, use tracking devices, um, use different, different methods that aren't necessarily legal. But, uh, so it, it, it does once I think, when the cost of the lawsuit is driven to a, a certain extent and it's costing a business so much money, that's when things start to, you know, rules begin to be broken and, and things can get a little dirty, but uh, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's very tricky. You know, you can, you can lose your license for doing stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I would think like, some of that would kind of self-police itself to a degree where like, cause I mean, you essentially can't make a mistake when you're at work, but like, you make a mistake and you get trespassing or you get like, like unlawful, like all sorts of potential issues. So like, I would imagine that word spreads if there's someone in the industry who's kind of taken a lot of shortcuts and it's probably not something that, that lasts too long, but um, you would obviously know better than I would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting industry because it's a large industry, but you keep running into the same people. You know, like I said, I've, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm I'm 35 years old, and I've been doing this for about 15 years. So I, I started it when I was pretty young, and I keep seeing the same the same people over and over. And the guys that were good back then, you know, are are doing better now. You know, and and you make a name in this industry. You have to you you can't just coast. You know, you have to you could go out and on a surveillance post up, take your pan shot, you know, of the area and then fall asleep. And then, you know, write up your report as if you were there all day and nothing happened, no activity, but, and you can get away with that, you know, a couple of times, maybe, maybe even for a couple of years, but at, in the long term, you're just not going to get hired. This guy doesn't produce results. He's turning in reports with no activity, no activity, no evidence. On the, other, on the other hand, if you're proactive, you go out there, you got high energy, you're ready to go, you're focused, and you're producing results, you're producing evidence, and you're, you're saving. The whole, the whole purpose of this game is loss prevention. So mm -hmm. all of my clients are trying to mitigate lawsuits, trying to mitigate settlements. And uh, if you're saving your clients money, they're going to call you back. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, how, that's how this industry works. Let me just kind of touch a little bit back on diet, you know, because you've been doing these ketogenics and carnivorous or mostly carnivorous diets for several years now. Did you notice a difference in your work performance, your cognition, your whatever observational skills, your efficiency? With Did diet have an impact on that at all? That was probably the main driver of why I, I gravitated towards low carb, keto, and then carnivore was because 
I could focus and I was, I was interested in what I was doing. You know, like I said before, when, when you feel good, life is just so much better, you know, like, so I'll, I'll do these long cases where, you know, eight, 10, 12, 14 hour days, sometimes just watching a facility, you know, to see who is coming and going. So I, I just read all day. You know, and I just, I just get in the habit of looking down, reading. And I, I mean, when I say reading, I read, and a lot of times when I got into this, this carnivore and this diet stuff, I was reading, you know, PubMed, you know, for all day long, just learning the science, learning the, the literature. And that is fun to do when you have a lot of energy, when your, your brain is just crackling with ideas and trying to put pieces together, you know, reading the study that you were in, Zach, the faster study. I remember that was one of the studies that really, uh, really just like piqued my interest and, and then pulling all these different ideas together. Um, so that has been definitely a big driver is the cognitive function that these diets uh, provide, you know, I, I mean, aside from obviously having to stay awake, that's, that's probably one of the biggest problems in this industry is uh, a lot of employers do what they call integrity checks where they send an investigator out on a case and then they send a second investigator out a couple hours later to make sure that guy, that guy's not sleeping. You know, it's so prevalent because people are, are investigators are just, you know, like I said, eating sugar and crashing, eating sugar, crashing, eating sugar and crashing. So it's such a problem in the industry that they have a second, you know, line of work just to try and, and keep these, these guys awake. So I think I've excelled in this, in this industry because a large part because I've been able just to, to simply just focus for long periods of time um, without getting bored or getting tired. So yeah, the diet definitely lends itself to that. It's interesting. You need a, a PI for the PI sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Gabe, are you still doing backflips, man? I remember you doing those backflips. I thought oh, yeah. Really cool. yeah. It's getting a little harder now that I'm, I'm heavier. So I've put on, I put on about 30 pounds and I'm still maintaining about, you know, 10, 10% body fat. Um, but yeah, I can still do a standing back tuck. Uh, I tried some recently and, and, uh, the first couple, I, I came up a little short and stubbed all 10 of my toes. <laughs> I do them on grass. So, so, but that's, that's been one thing that's been fun is trying to, trying to gain weight on this diet has, has been difficult for me. Um, but then also at the same time, when I finally did gain weight, all of a sudden I'm losing my agility. I'm losing my mobility. You know, it's getting harder to tie my shoes. I'm only five, nine and I got up to like two twenty. So it, it was, it, it's almost like a give and take, you know, mm -hmm. do you want to be big and strong and kind of slow, or do you want to be, you know, a little bit smaller and maybe more explosive? So yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you can be lean or you can be strong, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, you can run far and fast or you can, you can, you know, you can be, you can squat a lot. And, you know, that, it, you know, unless you're uh, incredibly genetically blessed or you're taking a bunch of, you know, a bunch of drugs, it's, it's really tough to do that. Yeah. If you're good at all of them, you're an NFL running back. <laughs> well, yeah, eventually, yeah. But I mean, like I said, I I did my backflip at 50. I'm going to try to get. In fact, it's kind of funny. After I get back from Paris for these rowing world championships, 
I told my seven-year-old we'd go to a gymnastics gym and both do backflips. So I'm going to see if I can do that again at 53. You know, not on the, not on the, I'm not stupid enough to do it on the concrete. I'll do it at a gymnastic gym. <laughs> where I, if I, you know, I got some pads to land on. So, but yeah, it's tougher when you're heavier, man. I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been doing a lot of the, the stretch yeah. shortening cycle training uh, yeah. to keep that explosiveness. So, yeah, so the plyometric some, stuff. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do, I like the Kaler Wollum, uh, the deadlift row, that plyo row. Yeah. You get a, put a bunch of weight on the bar and then just allow, as you're going down, allow, you know, your, your hamstrings, your glutes and your, and your low, your low extensors to stretch and then just explode that weight back up. So I do a lot of those. Um, and I do a lot of weighted jumps, um, just to try and keep that, that, that nervous system, you know, uh, real sharp because otherwise it, I, I start getting into this this heavy powerlifting stuff you know pulling 600 pounds and I, I just start to get slow I start to get a little bulky um, so there's a there's a happy medium you know and I think a lot of uh, a lot of carnivores that I talk to a lot of carnivores that I work with they get on the diet and they're they're like oh man I'm losing I'm losing weight you know I'm, I'm, I'm losing size I'm losing uh, that you know, guys like to be swole, you know, as they say, they want to be big, they want to look buff, you know. So uh, a couple of things that I've found that worked is like I said, stacking, I'll stack dextrose, uh, you know, 20 minutes before workout. And that seems to aid with the, like, like the glycogen swell. So if you want that look, if you're going kind of for the bodybuilder type, uh, type approach to strength training, what I, what I coach people is to just, you know, take, 10, maybe 20 grams of dextrose before or after or both. And you'll notice, you know, in the mirror that you kind of, you kind of blow up a little bit and you don't have to do that every day. You can do that once a week. You can do that once a month. Maybe you've got a, you know, a vacation planned to the Bahamas or something and you want to look jacked. So I'll coach people to, you know, stay in the carnivore diet for a long period of time and then train and get strong and work on, work on your muscular endurance. And then, you know, the week of, or the day, you know, whatever, before you're going to be taking your shirt off, just start loading some dextrose. And, and that's a lot of people find a lot of, a lot of results doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely going to move, you know, move some volume and particularly fluid into the muscle. That's for sure. And, and I think, you know, with dextrose, you know, if we, you know, one of the thoughts in the carnivore diet is it's, you know, certain compounds and plants that are causing irritation and problems and really, you know, glucose is in our body regardless, you know, I mean, it, dextrose is basically, obviously it's just pure, you know, glucose, it's basically two glucose molecules stuck, stuck together. But so, I mean, I think that's probably a wise way to do it. You know, if, if I were going to pick, you know, what way would I add carbs back in? That would probably be one of my top choices. Some people would say rice or sweet potatoes or something like that, but those things introduced in non-glucose molecules, which may be for some people, a problem because I've seen people that say they'll add white, white white rice back in, but then they'll get their previous health conditions. And it's interesting to say that when you said earlier on, when you do this for a period of time, you notice that you just don't feel as good. There's some joint issues, and 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 I will tell you, I mean, like for me, as I'm older, as I'm an old guy, I mean, those things come back very quickly, and so it becomes how do I want to train when my knee hurts versus you know maybe maybe sacrificing you know, 10% of a muscle pump and, and it, and it kind of, you know, what's the end, end result. And in my goal particularly is not how swole I'm going to look, it's more performance based. So it's kind of a, 
you know, it's a different, different, different goal, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Those young guys out there that, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's about, it's about vanity, you know, they want to look good. They're trying to get a date. You know, and it's kind of funny when you talk to women, like, you know, we get these guys that are professional bodybuilders that are, you know, 4% body fat shredded, huge and got veins. And most of them are like, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that. So yeah. like, who are you trying to look good for the other dudes? Or are you looking for, you know, well, you know, def definitely get more attention from other Jack guys. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the difference. Hey Dina, guys. One, one quick question. I like when you started bringing back the dextrose, did you do what did you how did you come to the amount because the one thing i'm always curious is with like especially the folks who are a little more strict along like keto or a little more strict along carnivore is just kind of the down regulation of being able to bring in like an exogenous carbohydrate source and obviously you know there's a dosage context there and it's not going to go away entirely but did you like find like by going above a certain amount there was kind of a margin of diminishing returns where you, instead of kind of getting a nice little pop in energy, you kind of had more of a lethargic feel. Yeah. Um, so how I got around that. <clears throat> so that all depends on your insulin sensitivity for me anyways. Mm -hmm. So if I go really low carb or zero carb for a while, my insulin sensitivity spikes. So I'm able to take in more dextrose without having stomach issues, gut issues, brain fog. Um, so in the beginning, how I, how I tracked that was, I would uh, take in, you know, 10 grams of dextrose and then just monitor my blood glucose and even monitor my ketones. If I got a big spike in, in my blood glucose, then it meant I took too much. You know, if, uh, if my ketones, you know, got shot for a while and I all of a sudden I had brain fog, that meant that I took too much. So I would basically just take as much as I could without seeing a huge spike in, in, uh, my, my numbers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I guess that just means that most of it is, is being soaked up and being stored as glycogen is what I was assuming or being used. Um, but if the goal is to, to increase muscle volume, then, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you don't want that to spill over because then you start gaining a little bit of, a little bit of body fat if you're using too much and then it kind of defeats the purpose of looking good if that's what your goal is. Sure. Yeah. And I guess you could, you, you could, you could narrow that in, you get a glucometer and, and, you know, just see, you know, see where you can see what you can tolerate before you see that spillover. That's right. And uh, yeah, it makes sense. Um, I got to run guys, man. It's been great, Gabe. I got to, I got to, I got a consultation I got to do here in just a bit. So, and I got to eat before I do it because I'm freaking starving. I <laughs> enough today. So it's a pleasure, uh, Gabe. And, you know, I like to run into you in person. You know, I guess I didn't realize Santa Ana is so sketchy, man. I'm going to, I'm going to be concerned about going in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> going just down the road in Laguna Hills. So anyway, cool, man. All right. Thanks guys. Cool. Appreciate Take care. It. Thanks Back for coming on, Gabe. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. 
Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.